Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio and I'm James Whitmore. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where this show is being broadcast from, the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nations, and my, pay my respects to Elders past and present. Today we're going to take a look at the energy industry off Victoria's coast and get to the bottom of whether laws and regulations are protecting the environment. I'll be right back after this. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday, October 15th. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Victoria's coast has always attracted the energy sector, with large fields of oil and gas under Bass Strait. Now those same areas have been declared as Australia's first offshore wind energy zones, where the country's first offshore wind farms will be built as part of national goals to reduce carbon emissions and address climate change. While reducing emissions is vital for reducing the impact of climate change, offshore wind farms will be, a large, will be large infrastructure developments in parts of the ocean that are already industrialised. Communities along the coast have been campaigning against new gas developments and offshore wind farms with a host of concerns such as impacts on marine life, but communities have also struggled to make themselves heard. So I wanted to know, are the laws in regulation and regulations we have enough to protect the environment and do they allow communities enough of a say? To find out, I spoke to Professor Samantha Hepburn, expert in energy law at Deakin University. All right, Sam, thanks so much for joining us on Out of the Blue. We've now got three offshore wind zones declared in Australia. What happens when a zone is declared and who makes the decisions? Yeah, very interesting. So when an offshore wind farm is declared, basically what companies will need to do is apply for a feasibility licence. The feasibility licence is essentially, um, you know, the you'll have an offshore wind or, sorry, offshore regulator, I don't think they use the word wind, an offshore regulator evaluating whether or not these companies have the capacity to develop a project. Um, And remember, it's regulated by the Offshore Electricity Infrastructure Act, which is actually a Commonwealth Act, um, which covers Commonwealth waters, which is essentially, uh, you know, in, in in, in the Commonwealth zone beyond three nautical miles, um, so most offshore projects are going to be in that area. So I'm just kind of getting the jurisdiction right, which is th- there is some consultation with state and territories, but basically this is a Commonwealth Act. So it's going to be a, 
a Commonwealth Minister making decisions as to whether or not a feasibility licence will be issued. And what we know, as you've mentioned, James, is that we already have a number of um, areas that are declared in, I think there are priority areas in Bass Strait off northern Tasmania and in the Indio Indian Ocean off um, Perth. But there are also a range of other areas in the Pacific Ocean of Hunter and Illawarra from Wambara to Kiama and in the Southern Ocean off Warrnambool and off South Australia um, and in the Bass Strait in Victoria off Gippsland. So these are areas that are progressing and that have had um, feasibility licences applied for. So, so what that means is that they must apply for the licence that's going to be evaluated. There's going to be a whole range of financial and environmental assessments involved in that. And this is offshore zones. So we're not dealing with what I would call domain-based conflicts. So we're not dealing with onshore land use issues, but we are still dealing with a range of different environmental concerns and you know, marine concerns, broader marine concerns. If uh, a, li a full licence is granted, it can endure for 40 years in the offshore zone um, and it essentially gives the operator permission to install what's called an undersea interconnector to transmit electricity. Um, th it is possible to get some short-term R&D licences up to 10 years and some people or some companies may need to do that to work out the feasibility, I guess, of the type of infrastructure that they might be putting into place. Um, but, you know, you've got a range of, of, I guess, environmental issues. Will they become fixtures? Are they going to be um, floating or fixed? Um, and what type of impact will it have upon the marine ecologies? Um, how will it, if there's any flow off from that, how would that impact things like the food web? What type of noise impact might it have? Um, you know, particularly, I guess, if there's going to be exploratory drilling and things to begin with. So those are going to be the sorts of concerns. And remember, we're often dealing with pristine waters. Um, I think there was also uh, the possibility of Gippsland of expanding areas further west of Wilson's Prom, which is actually a national park. Um, and so onshore, wind farms aren't al allowed in national park areas, but offshore wind farms are probably not going to be regulated as strictly in regard to um, marine parks, although they, there will be hopefully strong environmental assessment. And, and to move over to that, um, because it's in Commonwealth waters, you're going to have to rely upon the National Environment Act, the EPBC Act for environmental regulation. And the question is, is that effective enough? Um, it's, it's, of course, been the subject of a range of different reviews. The way that it operates is that if the project triggers what's called a matter of national environmental significance, so something like a threatened species or a world heritage area, um, in, you know, something like the Great Barrier Reef, then, then the Commonwealth Minister will have to undertake a detailed environmental assessment to approve it. Um, so it may well be that we're going to have to expand the triggers 
if we start to ex the, the, the triggers that would activate the offshore uh, sorry it's the triggers that would activate the EPBC Act if we're going to expand these offshore areas because otherwise we may not be rigorous enough in terms of our assessment of how these offshore infrastructure facilities and the interconnectors are impacting you know our precious marine ecologies and and the seawater itself now that said um, we don't necessarily have strong regulation for offshore gas drilling um, you know there there are regularly um, offshore incidents leakages explosions etc so you're not going to have that type of impact. And I thought on that note, and hopefully this is interesting, that um, might compare, you know, what we're looking at here. Wind, of course, is a sort of kinetic energy. It's not extraction. It's, it's we're generating something from a renewable resource, basically. And so... It's not as if we're having to go in and kind of destroy and annihilate and, and get things out and potentially impact everything else that's in the subsurface of either the onshore terrain or the offshore seabed. Um, we do still have to put in infrastructure and it has to be contained and firm, but you don't have the same level of impact that you would have with extraction. And when we're looking at extraction, um, and so if we go over and think about gas, the concern is that we're taking something out that has been, you know, percolating in the ground for thousands of years. Um, when we do take that out, there are invariably going to be a range of different disruptors to a classic one, of course, is water in the onshore area. Mm -hmm. um, where you are impacting groundwater significantly. Um, and in the offshore area, the concern is that the extraction process is potentially potential for contamination of seawater areas. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, for example, you're extracting unconventional gas, so gas that's located in perhaps... Um, uh, maybe a tight gas area in an offshore location where you're trying to fracture a rock to extract and you're using chemicals. It's concern. The concern is that you may not actually have integrity in that process, that there could be leakage. So, so we're not, when we're talking about offshore wind, for example, we're not talking about those types of concerns. We're talking about disruption from the installation of turbines um, which could impact vessels, it could impact, I guess, um, bird life, it could impact marine ecology, but we're not talking about uh, impact in terms of what we're taking out of the ground and having that kind of released into a different environment. Mm. You've talked about, I mean, um, some of the concerns are, are around, yeah, you've just mentioned some of them there, um, and also we know that um, Australia's environmental law is is not very adequate for addressing a lot of environmental concerns and communities along the coast have raised some of them already. Are there enough opportunities for communities to have a say in the development of um, offshore wind? Well, certainly there's a lot more in the onshore than there is offshore. 
Um, and I think that you've raised an important point. Offshore, traditionally, offshore mining has been a sort of remote, distant process that communities haven't been involved with. But in this context, there is a strong need for that. The first reason is because of the visual amenity. It may well be that many communities will be able to actually see offshore wind turbines. And so if it's impacting amenity and landscaping values, then it's important that communities get involved. However, the I guess the, the, the disjunct is that if the Offshore Electricity Infrastructure Act is Commonwealth, then local communities don't necessarily have entitlements under Commonwealth legislation. I'm talking with Professor Samantha Hepburn from Deakin University, and we'll hear more from Samantha after the break. But first, this is New Boys Band with Kijara Country. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio.
I'm Deborah Cheatham Freon, and you're listening to 3CR. Stay tuned and stay radical. That was Kajara Country by New Boys Band, and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. I'm talking to Professor Samantha Hepburn about the laws around gas development in Bass Strait. I asked Samantha if environmental laws take into account that wind energy is zero emissions and fossil fuels like gas are contributing to global warming. They do. So, so for example, there have been some interesting cases looking at onshore wind. Um, in Victoria, there was um, a case um, concerning the Bald Hill, Bald Eagle Wind Farm, um, which basically where the court um, essentially said in accordance with the provision of the Public and Wellbeing Act that the noise levels were quite high. They were compliant with New Zealand noise level requirements, the turbines that is, but they weren't really compliant with what were evolving to be the need for um, stricter requirements. So, So in fact, the court said this amounted to a private nuisance, which is a tort, which is basically saying, right, we're going to open up the floodgates for a range of different type, type of litigation that, that might arise. Um, and, and during that process, Richardson was very, I mean, it was a very interesting judgment because she was saying, well, look, you know, the assessment of whether it constitutes an unreasonable inter- interference and therefore amounts to a private nuisance is one thing. Whilst we accept that there are all these public benefits associated with accelerating renewable energy, we're still going to say that it could constitute a private nuisance because it's it's land-based, because it's it makes a noise and it's interfering with people's, you know, general well-being. Um, and so there has to be very strict requirements imposed. So I think what we see are courts accepting that and 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 trying to sort of support the evolution and and progression of renewable energy sector and particularly wind, um, but at the same time acknowledging that it still has to comply with appropriate environmental planning and community expectations, particularly where it's located within state and local regulatory frameworks, um, as onshore wind is. We've heard from activists on this show um, about the Otway gas basin and submissions recently closed on a license to do seismic blasting to test for gas. Can you explain who makes the decisions around gas developments off Victoria's coast? Because it's different to who makes the decisions around wind energy. Yeah, it is. And so once again, it comes down to the fact that this is an extraction process. And the, the so and it's also important to understand the different stages of a project. Stage one is an exploratory project uh, whereby, um, you know, companies apply for the right to carry out exploratory activities, which includes seismic testing and drilling and sampling to work out whether there's a sufficient reservoir. Um, And once they work that out, they can then go on and they have to apply for a production licence. Now, it's It depends, once again, because it's offshore, on where these reservoirs are located. But if it's located beyond three nautical miles, essentially, it's going to be in Commonwealth waters, so it's going to be a Commonwealth decision. 
but it's generally going to be regulated by NOPSEMA, the National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental um, Authority. Um, and that tends to try and bring into account, you know, I guess states' concerns, but ultimately it is a Commonwealth body. So that, and, and I guess the issue that we have here is exploratory licences can range from five to ten years and then, of course, full production licences can can be very long indeed if, if they're issued. Is the question of, is, is why are we doing this? Is there a need to, to supplement um, renewable energy with gas? Um, why can't we use what we've already got? Do we need to open up more offshore? And these are the broader environmental concerns because we know if we're opening up all of these projects and all of declaring all of these areas to be areas where you can apply for a feasibility license for an offshore wind project, then why on the earth do we also need to be opening up um, and developing um, exploratory areas for gas, uh, given that we know that the environmental impact from extraction is far more extensive in these offshore areas? And, and I think that's the big question that we really have to be thinking right now is that we have the capacity to accelerate renewables without necessarily having to expand fossil fuels like gas. We've got enough gas already. And I have spoken about this before. My opinion is that we need to utilise more extensively the resources that we've got um, on the East Coast in particular, um, and that would involve much greater regulation regarding how much is sent offshore um, and you know how much we can use uh, for domestic purposes until we achieve our expanded uh, renewable goals, which is only a few years away. Mm, yes, it's coming up very, very quickly. Um, it's interesting, like you've just mentioned that, you know, there are two different bodies that one one body looks after wind and one looks after gas, and then we've got overarching environmental law. How does the law manage, like, well, in, in Victoria, at least off the Otways, there are possibly going to be wind and gas happening in the same places. How does the yeah. law account for that? Well, and that's ridiculous. So that that's because our objective is to accelerate and to, to, to basically, I guess, promote energy security to make sure that we've got enough energy, enough electricity um, moving forward, then there's no need to develop both. Um, and I, the, the other point, I suppose, though, is to remember what I said. One is extraction and one is basically land use. So the turbines aren't extracting from the seabed, although if the turbines are being installed on the seabed, there may be some interference with the capacity to, um, I guess, drill down and extract. So to the extent that that interference might occur, there's going to have to be connection between NOPSEMA and the offshore wind regulator. Um, that, of course, hasn't happened yet because we've only, we're only at the early stages of issuing feasibility licences, but that's where the law is going to have to evolve. But my preliminary point is why do we need to be having all of the, these um you know, exploratory licences issued, particularly in a pristine area such as the Otway Basin, when we know, 
that the Offshore Electricity Infrastructure Act has released so many different declared areas and it's likely that, you know, wind energy is going to accelerate massively. And it's it's up to 10 times greater than onshore capacity, offshore wind, wind generators. Um, so it's going to depend how quickly we can get this infrastructure up, these feasibility licences progress through, um, but it does seem pointless to be focusing on that and at the same time, as you say, um, be issuing exploratory licences for extraction in pristine areas which are likely to have a significant environmental impact and, of course, cause great concern to, um, well, not just coastal communities. Commu people are concerned about progressing Ex, you know, offshore extractive industries um, because there's already so much extraction going on anyway um, that I think that, um, you know, our concern would be, well, how can we have these multiple activities going on in the offshore zone without having an irreparable environmental in, and social impact? And just on that social impact, I mean, the communities have been really campaigning very actively against... against um, gas developments on the coast, but it seems like the law is, is pretty restrictive about how they can make themselves heard. So, I mean, yeah. I've heard things like activists weren't able to mention climate impacts in recent submissions. I've seen they have to really push to declare that they are they're relevant people affected by the developments. Does the law around gas developments um, have, include enough for communities to have a say? Well, I don't think so. I really don't. And I think that's sort of, I think you can see a lot more um, development in the wind and particularly in onshore wind regulation where there are mandatory social impact statements that must be carried out as opposed to onshore, for example, unconventional gas. Um, gas tends, because the resource, and I think it comes down to this actually, because the resource is actually owned by the state, there's no right of veto. And so where you've got um, access, you know, if, if government wants to issue a licence to Santos or something, then they have a right to come on the land. The only sort of obligation is to obtain an access arrangement or a land and compensation agreement uh, prior to entering in and carrying out their authorised activities. But but the, the landowner can't actually stop it, okay? And there's a lot of antagonism associated with that realisation. That's a consequence of the land framework we live in, where we have a Commonwealth government that has overriding rights regarding, and, and has actually vested those rights to, to those um, fossil fuels um, in, in themselves, and so therefore have the capacity to licence out the right to extract. By contrast, um, you know, landowners can actually make money um, with an onshore wind lease, uh, you're entering into a lease. So that the, the operators can't put a turbine on your land because you can say no and, and, and so they're going to have to offer you money um, to, to do that. And I think that that gives people a greater sense of, well, I've been more involved in the process. Um, and, and look, that doesn't necessarily apply to non-landowners. Non-landowners can still feel a bit disengaged. But that said, there's still broader requirements for social impact 
Um, and as I said, you know, the, the recognition that sometimes noise can constitute private nuisance. None of that has occurred in the gas context. You've just had a massive expansion of gas. Victoria has banned unconventional gas in its constitution, but New South Wales and Queensland have just had rapid expansion and massive impact on groundwater and potential for groundwater contamination. Within an arid country, it's, it's enormously concerning. And, and very little capacity for communities to object, which I think does stem from the fact that, that governments sort of have this basic right because they own the, the resource to issue those licences. Um, and really all that can happen is these agreements will negotiate conflict resolution processes and will confer upon, for example, impacted landowners' rights to compensation if, if their surface activities have been interfered with or something like that, but no right to say no. And I think that that really reflects the fundamental difference between fossil fuel development and renewable development in the onshore zone. That was Professor Samantha Hepburn from Deakin University explaining how the laws around Victoria's offshore energy industry work and how communities are able to have a say. Samantha's new book on energy law is out now through Cambridge University Press. And that's all for this week. If you wanted to listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well. You are what you eat. And you are what, what you eat. Eats. And you're even Local Food what, Connections what interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. Here we go from dust to dust. You gotta just trust that upper crust and maintain that good terrain from whence you came.